Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. With me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, today, we're going to start with some activism at Nestle, and then we're going to move on to some recent private deals that have netted Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway some pretty big early returns. Uh, so, Chris, let's start with Nestle. Uh, over the weekend, Dan Loeb's third point disclosed a $3.5 billion stake in European consumer giant uh, Nestle. That $3.5 billion stake, well, I mean, it's just a gargantuan sum of money. It's only about 1.25% of the company, so we're not talking about a massive stake for an activist who would generally accumulate 5 or 10% of the of a company, but this is the largest initial stake ever for Third Point. Uh, I could be wrong, but it, it, I think this is the largest company to ever be targeted for activism. Nestle has a market cap just under three hundred billion. I mean, GE's been targeted, but even GE's smaller than Nestle. So I think P and G was targeted. P and G's a bit smaller. Yep, exactly. So I think this is just a massive thing. Uh, Loeb is pushing for Nestle to dispose of their $30 billion stake in L'Oreal. Uh, Nestle owns about 25% of L'Oreal. They've owned it for decades. Uh, he's also ha- pushing for Nestle to commit to achieving uh, higher margins. And uh, the move comes at an interesting time for both the space and European activism. You know, we mentioned Amazon's move to buy, buy Whole Foods. Uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal discussing how that move is kind of shaking up big brands and making people wonder if they're still relevant or if they're going to be under pressure. And European activism has been uh, – it's ramped up a bit recently, but it's kind of seen a bit of shaky, mixed success. Uh, activist Elliott recently failed to get European chemical giant Adzo Noble to consider a $30 billion really uh, big premium bid from PPG. So I've talked a lot. Chris, turn it over to you. What do you think about Third Point's move, Nestle, European activism in general? It's very interesting. I would side with Loeb as being right on his ideas he put forward, but this was not bombastic uh, Loeb. This was uh, a Loeb who's probably already been in contact with other shareholders, uh, enunciating things that other people have agreed with. Uh, Nestle would be wrong to uh, fight him. Uh, This always could take on the tone of uh, some of the the uh, early uh, lobe spats, including the uh, early lobe spat with a prospective European hire from a big insurer that ended up in shorter and testier responses each time until they were just left with single word insults. Uh, one of my favorite of the lobe uh, back and forth letters. Um, but, uh, you know, this is the, and, and, I, and I think the early lobe definitely was my favorite lobe, but this is uh, different. You know, this is a company that's been sleepy about controlling costs, somewhat indifferent to their shareholders historically um, and before him they were just too big to have to care about any one owner um, and they're really uh, you know poorly set up in some ways to compete in a food industry defined by Amazon prices and whole food quality and as for the L'Oreal, as for the L'Oreal issue there's no particular reason for them to hold that stake um, so I think that they're kind of on the back foot a little bit as a company, but as an individual, not true at all with Nestle CEO. Uh, it takes off a lot of pressure for him in some ways. The fact that he's new uh, compared to you know an insult-driven activist campaign, none of this is really an insult against him. And the new guy, Ulf uh, Mark Schneider, um, who has been very shareholder-friendly in past roles, could adopt some or all of these views without defending himself or getting into a crouch. If he plays this right, I think he could come out ahead 
personally in terms of his career. And maybe Loeb could off some of the more recalcitrant board members, maybe even the chairman, who's in this awkward role of being Schneider's predecessor and boss. Yeah, so I want to dive into two things you said. Uh, the the CEO part and uh, the bombastic language from Dan Loeb part. Let's start with the CEO part. I, sure. I think you're exactly right. You know, I think some of the coverage that was uh, that was written today said Loeb here. He's kind of pushing on a half open door because mm-hmm. a lot of the measures he's pushing, and even in the letter, a lot of the things he's talking about, they were like, "Hey, these these are things that the new CEO has said he's looking into, and we think he's going to do." So it's very interesting. I think you're right. The timing could be a win win. Now this new CEO, who I believe is Nestle's first ever external CEO, though I could be wrong on that, but he's an external CEO who's got a fantastic track record of shareholder history at his previous company, uh, Fresenius, a giant German healthcare company. Mm-hmm. Uh, now he's kind of got the, you know, before if he wanted to fire people or cut division slash costs off units, it was kind of on him. But yeah. now he could do it and say, look, you know, we've got this giant shareholder, we've got this giant uh, activist, we've kind of got to do some of these moves to appease him. It was interesting that he came out today and said, hey, you know, I don't know if selling the L'Oreal stakes exactly what we want to do. He came out today and said, hey, you know, uh, zero-based budgeting, with uh, which Kraft Heinz and 3G are famous for, which we've talked a lot on this podcast. He said that's not it, but he it does seem like Loeb is pushing in a very uh, – the direction that Nestle was going anywhere. So that half-open door was interesting. I'll turn it over to you, you and then I want to talk about one of You just things. always have pressure from the employees. You always have pressure from the board, and you always have pressure that is the inertia from what your predecessors have done. And it could leave him in a more powerful place to have this countervailing pressure from the shareholders that just hasn't gotten there. He might be able to do more of what he wanted to do anyways. Yep. And then the second thing I want to talk about was you mentioned this letter is not kind of – Dan Loeb is known, especially early Dan Loeb, as you mentioned, was known, known as one of the most bombastic. You know, his letters, he would write these letters and they would just rip and tear into pieces all these CEOs. And this was a very subdued letter, mm-hmm. right? He said, hey, a lot of the letter focused on, hey, we think you're going there anyway, but we encourage it. That's where we want you to go. There was no ripping of people. It really had a lot of praises for the company overall. And I do wonder if that's related to, you know, we've talked about it a couple times on this podcast in Europe, you know. The government, the labor unions, the workers, they've got a lot more say in the company Mm -hmm. and the company's future than American companies where it tends to be whoever controls the most shares and controls the most votes, controls management and controls the company's direction. Uh, Governments have a lot more say. And I wonder if the uh, American style of come in with scathing letters that just trash everyone, I wonder if it could even work over in Europe uh, and if Loeb kind of took a measured approach and said, hey – that approach can't work. I need to be a little friendlier, a little nicer, uh, you know, kind of have the tie on and let people kind of agree with me to get to have this work. I think he's learning. He's done business in Asia and in Europe and in places that are less susceptible than the U.S. to the original tools that were in his toolkit. And I think he's just added tools. And uh, I've always loved the uh, Buffett idea that you can always tell somebody to go to hell tomorrow. And uh, so you can, you can hold off on that. You don't have to start with that. And uh, I think that that's what Loeb is doing here. And, and we'll be talking about Warren Buffett in a second. But, you know, the last thing that I, I think about here is between this and the Amazon deal to buy Whole Foods, you know, we have long speculated that there is a big shakeup in CPG coming. You know, yep. Kraft Heinz is out there looking for the next deal. It's funny. Mondelez has been a constant rumored target of uh, Kraft Heinz. The only big giant CPG company that has lower margins than Mondelez is actually Nestle. Nestle. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had looked at them and said, well, Nestle's the only one who's unapproachable. At this point, Nestle's approachable. So you have to wonder, you know, 
is a giant Nestle deal coming. Uh, I think they're already looking to sell off some of their U.S. Uh, confectionery businesses like Kit Kat. So there's always already a small deal possibly in the works, but there could be a giant Nestle deal coming. You know, Kraft Heinz has been known to look big and do big deals, and Warren Buffett's got a huge balance sheet. He could fund it. Maybe Kraft Heinz for Nestle. Maybe Kraft Heinz for parts of Nestle. Maybe Nestle for someone else to kind of spur growth through that. I'm not sure, but I don't know what you think. You have the U.S. confectionery uh, bankers and advisors and the process heating up that they could lose control of it or it could kind of expand the demand side could be stronger than they think. I think that's where you really could have the beginning of a process. Who knows where it will end? Perfect. All right, so let's switch over to Warren Buffett's below-market deals. So twice in the past week or two, Warren Buffett has struck below-market deals to buy uh, public company stock at a discount. Now, the two deals were very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first was last Thursday, he agreed to buy about one-third of distressed Canadian lender home capital for $10 per share. That's a pretty nice discount considering shares had closed the prior day at $14.75. And then it worked out even better because shares on the news of Warren Buffett's deal, shares uh, ended the day, they're kind of trading around $17.50 or so. So that's a really nice return for Warren Buffett on that stake. Uh, In addition to that $400 million equity investment, he's going to provide them about a $2 billion uh, line of credit. And then today, he also agreed to buy uh, 10% of real estate company store capital at $20.25 per share. That was a slight discount to to store's closing price of $20.75. But once again, it worked out really well because uh, as I was writing this around 2 p.m. this afternoon, the stock was trading at around $22.75 on the news of Warren Buffett's deal. So, uh, you know, shareholders of both companies, it's gone well for them on the news of Warren Buffett's deal. The real winner, of course, is Buffett, who's seen kind of like 75% and 12 or so percent appreciation on his below market deals. But uh, I wanted to turn it over to you. You know, the, the two investments are obviously very different. But what do you think of both of them? I think Home Capital, he wanted it at the price he got. I think with Store, he actually wanted it. Uh, I think the latter is interesting in that it was a Berkshire initiated process, which Mm -hmm. is a little rarer, you know, in his kind of Berkshire Hathaway um, uh, folklore. It's always kind of waiting by the phone and somebody calling him. Uh, And uh, in uh, the Store case, this was something that he uh, sought. Um, I think that people really love the idea of virtuosity, of just being somehow kind of brilliant in some variant way. But it's much more likely that you'll make money by being at the right place at the right time with the right competitive advantage. And in this case, it's Buffett's scale, his speediness, and especially his confidence-inspiring reputation that really put him at a place where he's able to do these. Every once in a while, you'll get some critique about whether there's something unseemly about them. I think there absolutely is not. You have no fiduciary duty to fellow shareholders in a given investment. Your duty is to your own investors, and Buffett is uh, representing them on average in these sweetheart deals well. Yeah, so I, I want to dive a little bit more into So Store Capital, they came out and said, hey, Warren Buffett approached them with the deal. Mm-hmm. He said, hey, I've been studying you guys for three years. I, I'd like to do this deal. Uh, the, he reached out and contacted them. And, you know, you can see the difference in the two deals. Store Capital shares were at 2075 and he invested at 2025. So, so that's, he wants to do a deal. He gets a little bit of a discount, but he wants to do a deal. What surprised me about Store Capital is it was about uh, a $300 million deal, I think it was, mm-hmm. to buy 10% of the company. You know, it was small enough if he had wanted to. He could have just bought the whole thing. Are, are you surprised? Like, he just did this, 
you know, it, it's almost a rounding error. It is a rounding error for Berkshire. Are you surprised he would just reach out and do that 10% deal instead of just kind of buying the whole company if you wanted it? I think he'd like the whole company. Uh, maybe, you know, you have a public float as a comp structure and as a market uh, price discovery mechanism to uh, kind of bring in the rest in later. Yeah, and, and the other the alternative is maybe he liked the company at you know twenty twenty five and twenty seventy five, but even if he has to pay a ten percent premium to buy the whole company, you know it is a publicly traded REIT. Uh, REITs are basically you own a big you own a big mall or something. The mall pays out money, and you kind of pay out dividend. At twenty twenty five, it was say a five percent cap rate. At twenty twenty two, it's a four point five percent cap rate, and he just couldn't split that difference. So getting that getting it at the market price was important to him. Of all of the people who kind of fret, and I certainly associate myself with this, about long-term interest rates, Buffett seems to be very complacent about just backing into the rates of something we're going to have for a while, and you can just do valuation math on the basis that we probably will. Mm-hmm. And so kind of if you're just doing kind of arithmetic on your uh, return criteria, this could be the price that was just exactly as you're saying, the price he was willing to do it. But it's highly price sensitive there and that once you start kind of putting premium on top it just barely doesn't make it anymore i I thought it was interesting i haven't done tons on store capital but you know uh reits as we said uh retail focused reits have really been hit so far this Mm -hmm. year specifically mall ones because we've talked a lot about the death of malls the death of department stores and store capital it could kind of be a little bit the baby thrown out with the bathwater, where most of their exposure is to more movie theaters and entertainment type complexes that aren't really mall specific so maybe buffett did see you know hey i want to get exposure here i think this is a sector that's got a future uh and the other thing, as I'm saying this, uh, if you remember, we mentioned on our uh, podcast over the summer, he invested really heavily in Seertage, which is Sears's, uh, Sears's triple net lease property spinoff. So maybe he's just bullish on real estate in general and mall type real estate retail type real estate in general this is a little bit different but i'll I'll turn it over to you you know if you do a venn diagram uh between legal on one circle and edgy on the other one of the clearest examples of that just actionable overlap is one's own company information i mean if buffett knows things that nobody else does because he's chairman and ceo of Berkshire. Nobody could fault him for trading and acting on that. And so he's just looking at fantastic data. He has a view about the economy. He sees a lot of this. And I think that real estate is one of these areas that he keeps kind of peeking at is feeling that he's just comfortable with. It's not that complex to value. And so I think he just wants to pick away at this kind of thing. And and let's turn over to Home Capital Group for a second. So Home Capital Group was a a more distressed lender. He he bought stock in them at a very big discount to both book and where their stock had been trading, gave them a line of credit that is almost at 10% interest rate, which is obviously a very expensive line of credit. Mm -hmm. But one of the criticisms I've seen a lot of people saying is, hey, is he bailing out too many things and is he going to affect this buffet it uh, kind of the bailout is the stamp of good uh, good housekeeping approval uh, reputation that he has. And what they mentioned was, look, he bailed out Goldman Sachs, he bailed out Bank of America, and maybe bailout's not the right term, but he gave them kind of rescue type financing. And if you look at all of those, uh, while the company survived and the investment worked out really well for him, shareholders did not do that well in Goldman Sachs or Bank of America if you had invested in the same time. Now, you didn't get the deal he had. You had to buy the common, but shareholders didn't do that well. And they're wondering, hey, if shareholders don't do well in these Buffett-backed buyouts, does that cost him some reputation? So I'll turn it over to you. What do you think? This one's the worst-looking one to me. I, I, you know, we're, we're on a podcast. I feel like this is uh, kind of 
uh, a family uh, bickering within the value investing community. It was a, it was a popular a short uh, by people I uh, know and like and respect. And then Buffett, of all people, comes in to wreck the short case, uh, at least uh, from uh, where it was before you came in. Um, so if there was a one to tarnish the strategy, um, uh, this one comes uh, closest but uh, the price he was willing to pay, there, there are good short ideas that would be okay long ideas at the discount he paid. So they might both kind of be right. You uh, know, okay. and I will say two things. I didn't want to talk too much about home capital in specific. But A, Buffett could be looking at it as, hey, I can buy stock at a big discount. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I can solve a lot of this company's problems by giving them the line of credit. So he he's kind of the self-fulfilling solution to a lot of the short case. I don't know. I haven't looked at it that much. The other thing I would say is if I thought of who would be the most likely to be taken by a a, a kind of strange finance company fraud, I do think it would be a little bit Buffett, though I'd never want to bet against them. But just for the reason, you know, if you most insurers and finance companies, if like a private equity company was looking at them, they would have five analysts spend a week going through every loan at the like micro Excel level model. Whereas Buffett will generally just get an idea. He looks at it on his desk and he's got the favorite. He's got the famous "I'll see you an idea and know if I want to do it in five minutes or not." Mm-hmm. So if there was like some really strange, quirky issue in their loan book, I could see how Buffett would be the person not to be to be taken by it, where another private equity firm would be. I would never bet against Warren Buffett. I'm just saying that that did is something that popped into my head. And I'm kind of think back to the Irish banks in 2007, 2008, where Buffett bought at a huge discount to uh, book value right before book value shrunk to zero. So, yeah, uh, on one hand, again, never would bet against him. I think he is a good judge of character and a good judge of management. He understands people well. On the other side, to just generalize this slightly, but it may be applicable here, um, I think that most people in business and in life like to uh, congregate around people who are maybe 5% better or worse people than they are, but really don't have that much familiarity with people who are wildly more virtuous or less. And it's possible that if Buffett's dealing with people who are just bad actors uh, or have done things that are that he would never in a million years have done in either on compliance and ethics or on uh, leverage, on, on on things that are just so different than his business dealings, maybe he has a blind spot. Yeah. Though on the counter side, because I just feel strange having any criticism for yeah. Buffett on this podcast, on, on, on the other end, you know, Buffett historically, I can only think of uh, David Sokol, the, his ex kind of people thought he was the replacement for Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. who got fired for some strange insider trading. That's the really the only example in history I can think of of Warren Buffett being taken by someone who might or might not have been a bad actor. In general, his judge of reputation and uh, character has been pristine and it's been very quick. So again, wouldn't bet against Warren Buffett. I was just trying to raise the other side of the coin with this. Uh, I'll give you the final words, but we, we've probably got to sign off. Uh, long Berkshire Hathaway. Long Berkshire Hathaway. And, and now apparently long uh, store capital and home capital. Through and Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's see. Let's wrap this up. Don't bet against Buffett. Uh, choose, uh, all the time we have for today before we hit our disclosures. Just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. We'd also appreciate it if you don't even mention to Warren Buffett that we even hypothetically said bad things about him. Uh, Chris, disclosures, you mentioned Long Berkshire Hathaway. I think that's our only disclosure for yep. today. Great. We'll talk to you guys later this week.